0: WTBN Pinellas Park, W262CP Bayonet Point. Brought to you by Moss Nissan. Locations and versions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Odyssey. The following program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse. Sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. Mm -hmm.
1: Now equipment began to trickle into the country. Remember, 600,000 against 80 million. When the fighting resumed, the Arabs discovered a drastic turn of events. There is hardly a settlement in Israel that does not have its tales of tanks stopped at the gate with Molotov cocktails, of rifles snatched up for use from the hands of the dead, of fighting at 10 to 1 odds, uh, unembellished beats of, of individual and group heroism that would compare with the exploits of Joshua, Gideon, and king david in
0: 1948 the people of the newly formed country of israel faced staggering odds the surrounding arab nations struck swiftly with their united plan to cut israel in two and wipe it off the map israel had only been a country for a few months they scarcely had anything you could call an army and there were very few weapons available the prospect of survival let alone victory was very remote Hello, and welcome back to Verse by Verse, the radio teaching ministry of Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. These past few weeks, Steve has been taking us through a careful study of the biblical book of Esther, and we are nearing the end of the story. We have already seen how God worked in an amazing way to get rid of the chief enemy of the Jews, but there is still much that he must do to deliver his chosen people from utter destruction. Like the nation of Israel in 1948, the Jewish people in Esther's day were facing tremendous odds as the date for their destruction specified by Haman's order drew near. Yet God was determined to preserve them. Here's Pastor Steve to tell us how. Now,
1: I see a modern parallel in the way that God has protected Israel in our generation. Some of you probably know the history of Israel far more than I do. Some perhaps do not. But I'd like you to turn to Ezekiel chapter thirty seven And I said at the beginning of our study, uh, not tonight but a number of weeks ago that I see a great parallel between what God has done in Israel and is doing today, the nation, the modern state of Israel, and what He did back in esther 's time. You are for the most part a people who are unregenerate, there are a few believers, Jewish believers in Israel, for the most part, they are unregenerate, they are courageous, they will die for their their people and their cause, just like in Esther's time. And yes, God is preserving them in the same incredible way that He preserved them in Esther's time. Ezekiel thirty seven, verses one through eight, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. Ezekiel was given a vision of bones. And he caused me to pass among them round about, and behold there were very many on the surface of the valley, and Oh, they were very dry. They had been dead a long time is what it means. Dead, dry bones. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, thou knowest. You know. He said to me, prophesy over these bones. And say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you. That you may come to life. Now, who's he speaking about? Israel. Israel being dispersed. The dry bones symbolize the dispersed Jews driven from the land that God had promised them. As they, as a nation, they were, they were dead physically and spiritually, and they were not back in the land. Can they live, Ezekiel? Lord, you know. Well, prophesy. Because I will breathe into them that they may come to life. Verse six. And I will uh, will put sinews on them and make flesh grow back uh, um, on you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you that you may come alive. And you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together. Bone to its bone, and I looked, and behold, the sinews were on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. What does it mean there was no breath in them? They came to life, but there was no breath in them. What does he mean by that? Israel's resurrection and restoration, but Israel is not alive spiritually. Israel has been restored to the land, but there is no breath in them. The Spirit of God is not in them. Israel today is not an accident. There was not a political takeover. It did not happen by accident. God is in the process of bringing the Jew back to the land. He started it. It's continuing. It will continue. But they are not regenerated. They are dead spiritually. In fact, if you jump down to verse 14, you'll read this. And I will put my spirit... Within you, God says to Israel, and you will come to life and I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. They do not know the Lord has spoken and has done it. This is speaking about the return of Christ and the millennial kingdom. Yes, when the Jew Jew is a as a people, when Israel turns to the Lord and Paul says in Romans 11, then all Israel shall be saved. She will be made alive and God will put his spirit within her. But how would God bring Israel back to the land? That's that's a story in and of itself. The circumstances are just as incredible, my friends, as the circumstances in the book of Esther. Theodore Herzl was an Austrian Jew who was sent to Paris in the late 1800s as a newspaper reporter. And while in Paris... He covered what is now known as the very infamous trial of Alfred Dreyfus. If you know anything of history, you know that Dreyfus was a Jew who served the position of captain on the general staff of the French army. Dreyfus, by the way, I might add, was the only Jew in that high position, and he was accused of giving secrets to the enemy. And he was tried before a military court martial. Late 1800s. You can check back on the records, its history, and you can see the overwhelming evidence was for Dreyfus's innocence, but he was tried and he was found guilty. In fact, later, years later, after years of torture and imprisonment on Devil's Island, he was exonerated of all the charges. It was obviously uh, the anti-Semitism, the flames of its day that condemned Alfred Dreyfus. But these anti-Semitic waves and activities so that so surrounded the trial, so shocked newspaper reporter Theodore Herzl that he wrote a pamphlet, just burdened, and he wrote a pamphlet that was to influence the destiny of the world. It was a pamphlet that called for a homeland for the Jew. As a result of this, the first Zionist Congress in 1897 came about. From the flames of anti-Semitism grew an increasing conviction that the Jews needed a home of their own, that they could not survive in any place that was not their own. If in civilized France and later in civilized Germany, they could not escape anti-Semitism, Dreyfus and many other Jewish people knew that they needed a homeland for their own. And while there was much opposition to this calling for a homeland, much opposition, God removed every obstacle so that it became a reality. What obstacles did he remove? He removed the obstacle of Great Britain, which at that time was the strongest power in the world. Great Britain had the rights to Palestine. He removed Arab political pressure, which was a great obstacle with Britain. He removed the League of Nations, and later on he worked in the United Nations who gave Israel its land. And he also removed the obstacle of Nazism, which attempted to wipe out every Jew. And when the nation of Israel finally became a legal reality, at least on paper in 1947, there were only 600,000 Jews in all of the lands of Israel. You know how many in the surrounding Arab nations there were? A combined population of over 80 million. And the Arab nation said to Israel, if you declare yourself a nation, you're a nation on paper, but if you declare yourself a nation, we will drive you into the Mediterranean. 80 million to 600,000. Does that sound like the book of Esther? Could it happen again? Certainly. They only had six months to prepare. Why? Because in six months, all the British troops, about 100,000 British troops would leave Palestine and the Jewish people would be at the mercy of the inevitable attack from the Arab nations. Now, I'm going to, where I leave off, I'm going to pick up, uh, and I want to read to you a few pages, but it is exciting and it really fits in with Esther from Marv Rosenthal's book, which I highly recommend, called Not Without Design, speaking of the design that God has planned for the ages And he says this, and the chapter is entitled, The Bush Burned and Was Not Consumed, speaking of Israel. That's going to be lengthy, but listen. World leaders were largely agreed. If Israel declared herself a nation, the Arabs would attack and Israel would be stillborn. General George Marshall, American Secretary of State, counseled his friend David Ben-Gurion to bide his time until a more favorable political climate could develop for declaring Israel's nationhood. Ben-Gurion, later reflecting on the general's advice, said, and I quote from Ben-Gurion, for Marshall could not know what we knew, what we felt in our very bones, that this was our historic hour. If we did not live up to it through fear or weakness of spirit, it might be generations or even centuries before our people were given another historic opportunity if indeed we would be alive as a national group, end of quote. Rosenthal goes on to say, on the 14th of May, 1948, Ben-Gurion, who would become Israel's prime, first prime minister, declared Israel a nation. On the 15th, the last of the British forces withdrew. The same day, six Arab nations, Egypt, Syria, Transjordan, Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, and Iraq, invaded Israel. They approached like a fistful of fingers that would close together and pinch the life out of the infant state. The invading armies had a carefully devised plan and a precise timetable. The Egyptians were to sweep up the coast from the south and then fork out. One force would take uh, Yaffa Tel Aviv along the Mediterranean Sea. The second force would join the Arab Legion and, and coverage on Jerusalem. From the east, Iraqi troops would race westward toward Palestine, toward the Mediterranean to slice Israel in half. In the north, the Syrians and Lebanese would join forces to secure Galilee and Haifa. For the first month, battles raged up and down the land. The Jewish forces, initially without a tank, a fighter plane, or a field gun, suffered heavy casualties. The situation looked very grim, and I might add just like in Esther's time. Through the efforts of the United Nations, a truce went into effect on June 11th. It would only last until July 9th, but it gave Israel a a month's reprieve. It would prove to be all she needed. Now, why was there... And I'm just adding this. Why was there a a truce? Why did the United Nations do this? Because God was in it. I continue. Knowing that war was coming, Israeli agents were sent out to locate caches of military equipment. At the same time, Golda Meir, an amazing and courageous woman who would later become prime minister, was dispatched to America. Her assignment raised $5 million to purchase weapons. Born in Russia, brought to America as a child, she lived, was educated, and taught at school in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. As a young woman and a Zionist, she immigrated to Israel. Now, back in America, the first night at a rally in New York, she raised $11 million. And ultimately, she would raise $50 million. Word went out to Israeli agents to buy whatever equipment they could. Now, equipment began to trickle into the country. Remember, 600,000 against 80 million. When the fighting resumed, the Arabs discovered a drastic turn of events. There is hardly a settlement in Israel that does not have its tales of tanks stopped at the gate with Molotov cocktails, of rifles snatched up for use from the hands of the dead, of fighting at 10 to 1 odds, uh, unembellished beats of, of individual and group heroism that would compare with the exploits of Joshua, Gideon, and King David. Egypt sent an armada of ships to shell the city of Tel Aviv, located on the Mediterranean coast. Israel had no ships, no guns. She lay at the mercy of the attacking uh, fleet. Two young Israelis went aloft to meet the enemy. Now, I just want you to see and hear what happened. Two young Israelis went aloft to meet the enemy. Their plane, a Piper Cub. Their bombs, handmade. The pilot was David Sprin- Sprinzak, whose father would become the first speaker of the House of parliament, the Israeli parliament. The uh, bombardier was Matai Zukanek, whose father secured and deciphered the Dead Sea Scrolls. The little plane dove on the lead ship and hit it. The entire fleet turned tail and fled. Tel Aviv was saved, but the plane crashed and both young men died. Just two men, the whole fleet turned back. A major Egyptian force was moving north through the, uh, the desert. In its path stood a kibbutz, which is a communal farm, composed of nothing more than a row of cabins around the concrete uh, water tower in the open desert. The kibbutz had 75 settlers, to which were added 70 more fighters. Their total arsenal consisted of 80 rifles, two machine guns, and an anti-tank gun with five shells. Anticipating an attack, a complete underground fortress was built Staffed by a doctor and four nurses, totally surrounded by the enemy, supplied only by a piper cub, with every above-ground building destroyed, uh, the Negba kibbutz defended uh, defenders held out for six months. Emerging victorious. On one day alone, June 2nd, 6,000 shells fell on the surrounding garrison. Then came the major attack. Seven Egyptian tanks, 12 armored cars, 2,000 men, and overhead flying cover were two Arab-flown uh, spitfires. The battle lasted five hours. When the dust had cleared, six tanks had been hit. One spitfire shot down, and the Egyptians had pulled back. By accident? No. No. A little more than a month later, Egypt renewed its attack. This time they were met head-on by a rugged group of jeep-mobilized commandos dubbed Samson's Foxes. Within ten days, the dazed Egyptians would find their assault shattered, casualties high, and much of their equipment in Jewish hands. One of those commando units was uh, commanded by an eye-patched officer who would later become chief of staff, his name Moisha Dayan. At the southern end of the Sea of Galilee, where the, large, where the lake empties into the Jordan River, stands the oldest and largest kibbutz in Israel. Its name is De- Degania. Uh, combined Arab forces came against Degania with tanks, machine guns, and soldiers. In bitter fighting, the Arab forces gained entrance to the colony, but the oldest settler urged the young men to hold on. Things looked desperate as the tanks began to enter the compound. Now listen, two young people, a boy and a girl, about 15 or 16 years of age, were hidden in the bushes. They had crude, handmade weapons. They were bottles of of, of phosphorus uh, that burst into flame when the bottles were broken. One of these young people threw one of the Molotov cocktails right into the tank. By accident? No. God guided that. The bottle burst, the tank caught fire, the attacking enemy seeing the destruction of one tank and the damage to three others fled in disarray. The colony and the city of Tiberias were saved and another attack blunted. The visitor to Israel can still see the tank at the entrance to the kibbutz left as a memorial. In another major battle, Iraq, Iraqi Syrian and Transjordan forces came together to capture northern Israel and the city, the major city of Haifa. It was uh, at a Jewish colony near Mount Megiddo that the decisive battle took place. Once again, the Jews found themselves outgunned, outmanned, and surrounded. The besieged Jews had very few arm, arms and had given up all hope of deliverance. Suddenly, there, came, there was a gap in the Arab lines. To this very day, no one has a human explanation for it. Jewish defense forces at once entered the colony through the gap to reinforce the beleagu- beleaguered defenders. Stunned at this reversal, the Arabs withdrew their forces. This was the turning point in the battle for the Jezreel Valley in northern Israel. And then Marv Rosenthal concludes with these words. All hostilities were concluded by January 7th, 1949. The war of independence was over. Israel was a nation not only on paper, but in substance. Now why do we read this? Is it just history? no. No, God is still preserving his people. God is still protecting Israel. What happened in Israel in the 1940s is very similar what happened to the Jews at the time of Esther. No one can explain it except God was in it. There is no other explanation. It's not because of great military defense. It's not because of human ingenuity and creativity. God overcame every obstacle to secure their survival. And you know what? The people of Esther's day, the pagans, the Persians, it says in Esther that they, because of dread for the Jews, decided to become Jews. Now, that is not the right approach to evangelism. I want you to know that. That is, you know, it's not evangelism by dread. That's not our approach. But I'll tell you, it does say something. It does tell us that if pagan Jews can recognize that God is in charge, then we who are Christians, who have the Spirit of God, ought to recognize that. You ought to be able to read the history of Israel and see what's happening and and be discerning and be aware of what God is doing and praise Him for His sovereignty and how he, in providence he's working. What is is this saying to us? It's not saying that we ought to be Jews. That's not what it's saying. But it is saying that we ought to praise the God of Israel and the God of the church who is sovereign and in control. Our God is not silent. He is busy at work. And if pagans can see this, and certainly God's people can see this, be aware of what God is doing. Discern the times, and especially what God is doing in Israel. Don't think that you're divorced from it. For he that keepeth Israel neither sleeps nor slumbers, and that's still true today. Let's bow for prayer. Are you aware of what God is doing in your life? Are you aware of what God is doing in others' lives? I like what Francis Schaefer once said, he is not dead and he is not silent. God is very much alive on planet Earth. Why? Because he's on the throne above planet earth and heaven. And he reigns. If pagan Persians can recognize that God is for his people, how about us? Do you recognize the message of the book of Esther? I'm amazed how many, non, how many Christians try to allegorize or spiritualize this book instead of taking it its historical setting and context. Even the pagan Persians recognized what was going on. How about you? Can you give God praise for what he's done? No, we we don't endorse everything Israel does politically, but we endorse their right to exist, and we certainly affirm the fact that God has worked on their behalf. We don't endorse the political atrocities of any nation. But we do say, as Paul said in Romans, if God is for them, who can be against them? And God is for you too. He's working in your life. Are you giving him praise for being so sovereign? I read this to you that you might recognize that God didn't just isolate Himself and work back then. He's still alive. He's still at work because He still reigns. Whether you recognize it or not, He reigns. It's just nice for us to cooperate with Him. I trust You will. Father, help us to recognize that the God of Israel still lives, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Lord God of the church still lives. He's still at work and he's still accomplishing what he wants to accomplish. Lord help us to cooperate with you. Help us to be used as part of your plan. And Lord, yet we, we recognize that even if we won't, you'll you'll even use unbelievers who are not even aware that you are alive and exist to work out your plan. You're so sovereign. Lord help us to be discerning. If you can use Mordecai, Esther, King Ahasuerus, Haman, then we know that you're the Most High that reigns on high. Help us to have a vision of that. Help us to apply it to our lives and to live as if you're in control. For we pray this in your sovereign name. Amen.
0: In the Old Testament, Jehovah is sometimes referred to as the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies. This is how David spoke of him as he went out to meet Goliath. Repeatedly in Israel's history, God demonstrated that he is able to make his people prevail, even though they were often badly outnumbered. Yet he is not only the Lord of hosts. He is master over all things. He can and does exercise control over the forces of nature and the decisions of men. This study in the book of Esther has clearly demonstrated the kind of providential control that God uses in governing the world. Men do still make their choices, and often those choices are contrary to the commandments of God. But God's knowledge and power have no limit, and He takes even our sinful choices and incorporates them to achieve His goals. What this means for us is that we can fully trust God to manage things in our lives in a way that is best for us. We know that He loves us beyond measure, for He gave His own Son to die for us so that we could be with Him forever. This perfect love, together with His wisdom and power, enables us to place our confidence in Him and leave our worries at His feet. Pastor Steve has written a book that deals with God's preservation of Israel, and it answers the question of why God continues to be interested in this small nation of people. Though much has happened to them throughout their troubled history, the Jews are still the chosen people of God, and He will fulfill His promises to them. The title of the book is God's Plan for Israel, and you can order it today when you call us at seven two seven two three nine zero three zero six. Well, Haman is.